time understood sound and sense do not necessarily coincide in the mind of the listener the word first comes to us as a sound enveloped by other sounds it is only later on a higher level of abstraction that we detach the word from its soundscape parsing its meaning according to linguistic codes for a brief moment though the spoken word and its noise are fused merged in what arnheim calls a sensuous unity exterior to language. The oral world consists of sounds and noises. We are inclined to give the first place in this world to the spoken word. We must not forget, however, especially when we are dealing with art, that mere sound has a more direct and powerful effect than the word. It is difficult at first for most people to realize that, in the work of art, the sound of the word, because it is more elemental, should be of more importance than the meaning. But it is so. Arnheim was asking readers to think of sound as a semiotically complex phenomenon in itself, detached from verbal meanings. As a statement about art, advancing the priority of sound over the law of meaning was consistent with avant-garde ideas, such as those associated with Luigi Russolo's noise art, F.T. Marinetti's brutism, Dada's sound poetry, Antonin Artaud's theater of cruelty, and Pierre Schaeffer's musique concrète, even if it was not very amenable to an emergent radio industry that saw its future in the economics of sponsorship. Once sound was no longer tethered to linguistic meaning, a radical form of radio art was implied, as Douglas Kahn has noted, a possibility unlikely to please the guardians of American radio. Phonophobia. In fact, cultural nervousness about the psychodynamics of radio sound had already appeared. The worry was that if sound did not always coincide with meaning, then listeners might stray from radio's message. This anxiety was an early concern of radio research. As Hadley Cantrell and Gordon W. Allport wrote in 1935, when Americans became mesmerized by a technology that exalted the auditory sense above all others, the sound of radio could become a source of distraction, interfering with chores and activities, and even disrupting the content of radio itself, leaving programs half-heard. Americans did housework, handicrafts, and farm work with the radio on. They drank, smoked, embroidered, talked, danced, played bridge, did homework, and made meals against the backdrop of daily broadcasts, presumably inattentively. The problem of the distracted listener surfaced as a pressing theme in American public discourse during the 1930s, much the way Internet surfing worries today's cultural elite. Educators and reformers lamented that listeners were not giving radio programming their undivided attention. Surveys indicated that many Americans simply did not focus on radio shows. Young people in particular, it was thought, lacked sufficient concentration to give radio its proper due, failing to listen with discerning interest to radio's speaking voices and their messages. Without greater attentiveness, reformers feared, American listeners would lose their critical edge, becoming more passive, even lazy. To avoid bad habits, listeners were advised to consult with network guides in newspapers so as to make more deliberate programming choices. They were encouraged to organize attentiveness groups, 
and it was even suggested that intelligent listening habits be taught in the schools. In the view of the cultural elite, Americans were experiencing what I would describe as a kind of acoustic drift, straying from radio's message. If this was true, the cause was not so much that their minds were elsewhere, but that, as Arnheim noted, it was the nature of sound to stray from the work of meaning. Since sound follows the listener wherever he turns, radio tends to become the auditory foil of daily occupations, attracting sporadic attention but not really commanding its audience. Pure sound, he wrote, encourages the mind to wander. America's cultural elite may have had radio's socioeconomic influence in mind when preaching against distracted listening, but the logocentric assumptions they brought to the medium, especially the assumption that radio's form should always be inseparable from...